Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. And when it comes to U.S.-Russia relations, everything old is new again. Russia and the West are separating fast. For those of us who were alive in the 1980s, it all feels bracingly familiar. That includes especially nuclear saber-rattling. Putin, the Duma, and Russia TV feel like they've gone out of their way to remind the rest of the world, hey, we've got nukes. But how likely is the possibility of nuclear war really, and what are Russia's nuclear capabilities exactly? Here to help us answer those questions is Emma Claire Foley. Foley is an associate partner for research and policy at Global Zero, an organization working to reduce the likelihood of nuclear war and ultimately eliminate nuclear weapons. Emma Claire, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So one to 10, how scared are you that we are on the precipice of a nuclear war? So I would say if one is not at all scared, nuclear weapons don't exist. This is not an issue. And 10 is there's like a confirmed report of an incoming nuclear attack. I'm like, maybe, maybe a four, maybe three, maybe four. And I've gone as high as eight at different times during this crisis. But I can kind of break this down. In a recent interview, I think for Current Affairs, Noam Chomsky said that this for him is the high point of of the risk of nuclear war in his, in his lifetime. And, you know, he's someone who I, whose opinions I take pretty seriously. And I think that I am feeling a similar way, although I don't have the same benefit of experience. Right. But just looking at the situation and just, and, and having the the background in nuclear weapons and nuclear risk issues, I think there's a lot to be justly worried about right now. I would say Basically, the two scenarios that you're looking at, and this is reflected in the media, as well as expert opinion um, and the statement, official statements from, you know, the relevant governments are, you know, the kind of traditional scenario of a U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange, which follows somehow from political escalation or some kind of impasse. And that would be, you know, an attack on each other's territory, possibly engaging the uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, missile forces of each country. And then the other scenario you're hearing a lot about is this so-called tactical nuclear weapon use that could be Russia using a so-called smaller nuclear weapon on the territory of 
of Ukraine or um, in the vicinity in some way. The theory being that could, you know, de-escalate the conflict or create a situation where, you know, the Ukrainians and the Western allies who are providing material to them and support to them are not comfortable going any further. And so that brings an end to the war. I'm not like, I do spend a lot of time thinking about which one of these is, is likely or more likely, but I don't, I don't really have a precise schema for that. But I think there've been different moments at like during this crisis where one or another of those has become more or less, come to seem more or less likely. The other distinction I'll, I'll throw in here is that we think a lot in both of these scenarios about intentional nuclear use, you know, like even um, though it's a disastrous decision and one where, you know, in my opinion, the consequences always outweigh the benefits. We think of it as, you know, someone's really, someone's thinking rationally with all the information they need to make this decision. The one exception there is this sort of madman theory where people talk about President Putin as, you know, not thinking rationally. But I think that falls within the same overall class, the same type of of scenario. The other scenario that I think gets less attention in the press is the accidental scenario, which would be in an, a moment of heightened tension, uh, a misinterpretation available in t- by one party or the other, or the other, because the decision times around nuclear strikes are so short by design. And this has happened before in history that you know you've seen a near miss where something has been misinterpreted, and you know there's almost a launch, almost a decision to to conduct a nuclear attack until something something stops it. So that's kind of what worries me more in this situation. It's that in this moment where everything's so tense, where communication channels are sort of dwindling that that there might be a misinterpretation that could cause an accidental first strike. I think it's kind of interesting that we don't focus on that accidental thing in the press because as you said, it has we've been in that place pretty frequently over since 1945, right? And we've been extremely lucky that typically there's always someone in the chain that says, you know what, let's hold off. Let's maybe not follow these orders and push that button. I bet it was something wrong with the radar. And that's usually what ends up happening. But on a long enough timeline, you know, we can't be lucky forever. When were you at an eight? Out of- I think I was at an eight. Yeah, I remember very clearly being in the Ikea in Red Hook, Brooklyn, when I heard that, I think it was the first raft of military aid to Ukraine. And I was just, you know, pretty worried about a moment where uh, Europe or the US would choose to get engaged militarily on any level. Um, We've, you know, reached a, a weird, very unstable status quo within this conflict where it's like, you know, this is happening, you know, like there's uh, massive military aid being sent to Ukraine, which has not provoked like any sort of direct confrontation with between the US and Russia. But I just yeah, I mean, I remember being in this like massive warehouse of, you know, all the things you need for like a comfortable life, looking out at the skyline of New York City, and just (laughs) feeling this like intense uh, anxiety at a level that I kind of had not felt since I started uh, this job about four years ago, that, you know, all of that, everything around me, and just sort of this, this great city, and, and just everything we had ever known might, might disappear uh, in the span of an hour, if, you know, such the move that had just been announced was taken as a as an, as an escalation or a direct escalation against Russia. So, I think that went away after after a day or so, and it's kind of 
you know, it's come back every so often. I think you you get used to this, to living in a, a state of heightened, you know, awareness and anxiety about this pretty quickly. But that moment really sticks in my mind as a as one where I was I I was you know really afraid that that this might spin out of control. That's that's interesting because that I've I've similar it wasn't that exact moment, but I, I actually had one today where you, I have these moments where it's usually when I'm looking at the bigger picture and taking in like big data streams, I start to get a little scared and start to think that this thing is going to escalate in ways that we're not quite prepared for. And I was looking at Moldova and some of the, the alleged arsons that are happening within Russia that we don't know that much about. I'm getting kind of worried today. (laughs) So I, I understand, but let's setting that aside. Can I get you to react to, you know, there's been so many weird little bits of rhetoric and escalation that have happened over the past few months regarding nuclear weapons. The most recent one, I think the most recent one, is Lavrov on Russian state TV. Uh, and I'm going to read the quote here. And this is translated, of course, so it's, you know, things are going to be lost. Uh, he's on television. He's talking about a nuclear exchange with the, with the U.S. Quote, the danger is serious, real. It cannot be underestimated. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were not many written rules, but the rules of conduct were clear enough. Moscow understood how Washington was behaving. Washington understood how Moscow was behaving. Now there are few rules left. What do you make of that? Do you think there are few rules left, that this is less, this is more scary than the Cuban Missile Crisis? I mean, I think there are a lot of valid comparisons to the Cuban Missile Crisis that we can make as observers. I And one of the ones that comes to mind that's already flowing from the conversation we've had has been the fact that, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't just a moment. It was kind of a long period. It was was a relatively long period with a few moments of more intense risk within it. And that, I think, is a a good way of understanding the nuclear dimension of of this moment. And and I think of, of, you know, how nuclear weapons play into all kinds of conflicts in general. I think the thing to focus on here is uh, that this is coming from the chief diplomat of the country that is actively pursuing uh, the invasion that precipitated this moment of risk, right? So it's like, and, and, and you're seeing similar language from the United States. We saw just very recently U.S. military leaders meeting with allies, striking a very similar that Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, is a death blow to the international order, the same idea of like the rules, right? And the great power competition, this is the, the line that is put forward, this is not my interpretation, is now the ascendant political, geopolitical paradigm. So so, so this is something that we've heard a lot about in the last few years, right? Like great power, this and that, that the US, China and Russia are sort of like balancing their interests and thus determining uh, the path of geopolitics rather than, you know, some sort of rules-based order uh, that is mo- mostly used in these situations, I think, uh, rhetorically to justify a movement away from, you know, abiding by existing agreements, right? Because I think we have to ask ourselves who makes these rules. It's not like there's a higher legal authority that either of these countries is reliably respecting or appealing to, right? The US and Russia have both decided, and even you can even think of this decision as collaborative in some way, right? Like it has occurred through dialogue between these two countries that together possess about 90% of the US of the world's sorry nuclear weapons. They've both decided that the rules as they stand are less valuable than the advantage they can get from what they see as, you know, active activities that stretch these rules until they break. But it's interesting for to hear Lavrov say this sort of thing because it's like 
if he's, you know, he's describing the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis as a time when there were, you know, understood norms rather than rules, right? But if, if that can be taken to mean anything concrete, I think what he might be referring to is crisis communications, which still do exist between the US and Russia to some degree, right? That was kind of at a, at a low, at a recent low during that the later years of the Trump administration, which, you know, made a really concerted effort to kind of cut off all these channels of, of communication and of collaboration and diplomatic work between the U.S. and Russia. And some of the repair work for, for those sort of lower level diplomatic ties that went on in the early Biden administration is, is still in place. And I think that's something that's really valuable when you're thinking about this like accidental nuclear use scenario, right? There, there is, you know, maybe not a big red telephone, but there's something that allows both sides to kind of compare notes and, and check against information that might lead to an accidental first strike. I was talking with someone a few weeks ago, a retired general who was talking about protocols. Like, so, you know, what exactly the tit is for the tat, (laughs) so to speak. Like, if Russia used a tactical nuke in Ukraine, he was saying that it's a secret what it is that the United States would do. Is that true? And why is it a secret? Wouldn't it be safer for everyone to know? Yeah, I mean, it would definitely (laughs) be definitely safer to have a clear and comprehensive declaratory policy, which is what we call that. And, uh, you know, the Biden administration is in the coming months going to release its nuclear posture review, which is uh, released by every new presidential administration in the United States and details the scenarios when uh, the U.S. would use a nuclear weapon. We got kind of a sneak peek of that a couple of weeks ago. And one of the highlights of that, it also sort of details the use or or like intention to get rid of various weapon systems, things like that. It's a full overview of how the U.S. intends to, how the administration intends to manage and use or not use its, its uh, nuclear capabilities. And so one of the things that came out of that was this phrasing that the fundamental purpose, uh, that was the, the phrase of U.S. nuclear weapons was, this comes out of a very long and delicate strategic conversation about whether the United States would be willing to adopt what's called a no first use policy, which would say that the U.S. will not use nuclear weapons first in any circumstance. The goal of this, and the reason I bring this now is because of that that transparency aspect, right? There's a widespread belief that I think filters down through the media into more popular opinion that ambiguity is really useful, right? In um, situations involving nuclear weapons, because in theory, you know, Russia doesn't know what the U.S. will do if it uses a you know, a nuclear weapon in in any circumstance, maybe, but a tactical nuclear weapon, as we're saying now. And so it, you know, the idea is that that affects its risk calculus, that it doesn't want to risk like, you know, an an unacceptable consequence for its own actions. You know, the other side of this, and the one that I tend to agree with more is that if you rely on ambiguity, you for you make it more likely that you're going to get one of these situations that we've already discussed, right? Where it's like, you're not sure what the other side is doing. You're in a moment where you're risking, you know, if you do nothing and there is an incoming strike, so you, you risk maybe losing your ability to do a retaliatory strike or something like that, right? And is really, that's the risk calculation that you're looking at in a moment and when, when ambiguity is like a strategy, right? So if you're really serious about avoiding 
nuclear use, which I am, I think erring on the side of transparency is better. But with the issue of what to do if Russia uses a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine or in the context of its invasion of Ukraine, for me, I think it's really uh, tempting to kind of speculate on what the appropriate response to that would be. But for me, I think thinking in, in terms of the vast majority of people's interests and their ability to affect or inability to affect nuclear weapons policy, the, the best course of action is simply to do everything you can to support the elimination of nuclear weapons, including tactical nu- nuclear weapons, right? Because fundamentally, you can't undo a nuclear strike, right? You can't, there's, there's like very little you can do in response that's going to like, come anywhere close, you know, you're, it can all, the situation can only get worse. And the only way to effectively prevent that kind of situation is to, you know, make sure we don't have weapons that can cause the kind of damage that a tactical nuclear weapon would. Can we talk about Russian nuclear capabilities? What, what do we know that is concrete about what they have? Do we know how many ICBMs they have? And what's the deal with this this Sarmat that has been, everyone got excised about last, I think it was last week. Yeah. So we have pretty pre- precise information about what Russia, what Russia's nuclear capabilities are. I would say the best openly available source of information for that is regularly published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. It's called the Nuclear Notebook. Uh, and researchers regularly publish a, um, an inventory of existing nuclear weapons from all nuclear weapon states drawn from open source research. So that's usually what I go to when I want precise information about how many weapons a, a given country has. With Russia, you have about 300 ICBM launchers currently and about 1,200 total warheads. That's in comparison to the U.S.'s 400 launchers and 800 total warheads. With the Sarmat, you got this kind of, you got a, a lot of alarm, obviously, when um, the test occurred last week. And I think that's really understandable. The dynamics of nuclear testing since the beginning of the Ukraine crisis have shown what you know has, has always been true, that any action taken with nuclear weapons, even if it's ostensibly you know, non-aggressive, like a test or something like that, can, will always play into the larger political dynamics of nuclear weapons. And so there was a widely publicized decision by the United States to not test an ICBM several weeks. And that, you know, in the same way, was sort of played as a as an indication of like responsibility and restraint, whereas the messaging around the Sarmat test, which incidentally had been planned for a very long time and sort of duly announced in the Western press, would was was played off as like kind of a as a part of the rhetoric of like a potential nu- nuclear escalation as a as a threat, right, and a, a sign of what Russia might be willing to do if if pressed. I think that. You have you have to think about the ICBM forces of each country. You have to think about the nuclear dynamics of the, of of between the U.S. and Russia as um, you know ongoing and more determined by this longer term push towards modernization that both countries are undertaking, rather than like a short term kind of way of using the nuclear the nuclear forces as a threat or as a sort of political tool, right? But it's very easy if you have these weapons to, to kind of take those opportunities as they come. Yeah, I want to throw some context in here, as I think, like, obviously, the moment that we're in right now matters quite a bit. However, like that specific launch, and also just the Sarmat in general is not 
you know, like as you said, the launch had been planned for a while. This stuff is not out of the ordinary. I would say, especially given the last like ten years, and I think like that that push towards modernization, which is driving a lot of the investments in both the West and in Russia into nuclear weapons, developing new kinds of nuclear weapons, even a push from Britain to acquire new new weapons uh, a couple of years ago. But I'm reminded of 2016 when I think when Putin announced the Sarmat, he also announced the nuclear-powered cruise missile, which we can talk about in a second, and... A, I think a new kind of uh, a new kind of submarine-based nuke, if I recall correctly. And in yeah. that press conference in 2016, showed CGI footage of them launching the Sarmat at Mar-a-Lago. Like so, in the grand scheme of uh, like nuclear rhetoric, like the stuff we're seeing now is not completely out of the ordinary, right? It's just the fact that there's the war going on that I think adds to the anxiety. Oh, yeah, absolutely not (laughs) out of the ordinary. I think, you know, as I said, I've been in this field for four years, and it's truly never a dull moment. Um, Even before I I started working, working on on nuclear disarmament. But yeah, I mean, I I think that on the longer term, you know, that not that shouldn't necessarily be taken as comforting. Again, I, I do kind of err on the side of like, yes, you should be worried about nuclear weapons in the, you know, the longer term drive by Russia, the sort of uh, new wave of nightmarish weapons, some of which you've mentioned that it rolled out in the past few years, you know, at different levels of you know, success in development or at different at different stages in their development are, a, you know, are a real escalation uh, in the same way that the United States uh, decision during that to to expand the, you know, the range of nuclear weapons it is building and possesses like is is an escalation. It's strange also to contrast this to what I think before the Ukraine invasion was a persistent sense in in the public mind that nuclear weapons were somehow less relevant or less threatening than they had been maybe 30 years ago. Although that, I think, is is really rapidly changing because of this, this invasion. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. What uh, makes it necessary to build up or redo our nuclear missiles. I mean, why are we putting a trillion dollars into it? Why are the Russians so concerned to update their missiles? Weren't we all able to kill each other before? Because I, I, let me answer this because I have a funny answer. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Because there was a bunch of bad press 10 years ago about how America's ICBMs were 
running off of floppy disks and still using computers from the 70s that were security risks. And some guy dropped a wrench in one of the on an ICBM in, in one of those tunnels in, I think, the Midwest somewhere. And we're lucky that, you know, that it wasn't a horrifying disaster. And these things have been sitting around unused for a while. You know, do they still work? Who's to say? Maybe we should put more money into making sure they work, et cetera, et cetera. And that's my brief pithy. That's my pithy answer. I don't know if you have something else. Yeah. I mean, I could go, I could go way less pithy. Actually. Um, I spend most of my time working on those very missiles in five States and the Midwest and, and mountain West. And there are a lot of stories you can tell about one, you know, are we sure they work? Do they work? And two, you know, the more subtle kind of interest service dynamics uh, within the military of like, when do we replace the nuclear weapon? When do we decide it, it needs to be replaced or it doesn't, right? So, I mean, the conversation around modern, modernizing the ICBM force in the U.S. has been a long one. And there's been until very recently when the what's called the GBSD, the Ground-Based Strategic Deterrent Program, which will replace all of the U.S. ICBMs, moved forward that program that we sort of renovate existing ICBMs, right? But yeah, they went into the ground about in the early 1960s in, in those states, um, and the U.S. no longer conducts nuclear uh, weapons test. You know, it, it tests its capabilities mostly through uh, computer programs. There's, there's a very you know elaborate way that we test many capabilities, but we don't do like a full, we don't do full weapons tests anymore, which are prohibited by treaty. Um, so there's, you know, there are arguments for, for replacing them. And, you know, the one I tend to go to is that uh, ICBMs are kind of are more of a risk than they are a benefit, even if you're someone who fully signs on to nuclear deterrence as an indefinite basis for national security. And we can go into that logic if, if you like. But yeah, we've we've committed to investing $300 billion, uh, roughly into uh, replacing our ICBMs. Can't we just hire Elon Musk to do it? I mean, absolutely he's already got not. all the rockets. No, absolutely not. Those rockets explode over Boca Chica. No, thank you. We lost enough nukes in the ocean in the days of strategic air command. We don't need more. We don't need more broken arrows. Yeah, I don't know if move fast and break things is like <laughs> the way you want to approach. What can the U.S. do to ease tensions here, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say that what, what you're seeing now from the U.S. is Intentions to to isolate Russia in sort of diplomatically, politically going forward. Uh, that is the intention. I think you can read pretty pretty easily into the sanctions and other economic measures that have been taken against Russia. And I'm I'm, I'm not saying that was a bad response overall, but I would say from the perspective of nuclear weapons, um, that's it's just that is just not a, a responsible attitude to take. Right. There are many different aspects to the U.S.-Russia relationship. And we've seen many moments during the, the Soviet period, right, where uh, in certain areas, like the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and the Soviet Union, rather, were not in any way getting along. Right. Things were very tense. But nevertheless, like there was still progress being made on arms control issues. And that, I think, is kind of what in the medium term, we need to aim for, right? And a functional relationship, even if it's not a good relationship. But in the, in the moment, 
the number one priority should be keeping the risk of nuclear use low, which means maintaining communication whenever possible and not feeding into this rhetoric of, um, you know, no rules, global collapse. Uh, the need for, you know, arming yourself to the teeth, first of all, is the only, only response to these developments. Well, we do have another player now arming themselves to the teeth. And I'm not talking about North Korea, which, boy, is its own case. And I'm sure, you know, we all know they are armed to their teeth. But China is now making this huge push into developing their nuclear weapons program. Why? And are they just looking to join the deterrence club? Yeah, I mean, I think if I could give a really really watertight reason for why China is doing what it's doing. I would experience like a level of career success I cannot imagine at present. But I think that China has been, you know, China has about 300 nuclear weapons. So in terms of deterrence, I mean, I think that is sufficient, right? But there has been this like ramped up rhetoric around China as an adversary of the United States. There are complex dynamics in that tripartite relationship, right, where the where China and Russia are, have pretty close ties uh, and the U.S. is kind of navigating its relationship with both of them. Obviously, this invasion has thrown a big wrench into all of that. But, you know, I would say that I, I wouldn't read China's decision to expand its nuclear arsenal as like a simple aspirational attempt to kind of, you know, become a world power if we're measuring like being a, a world power, or a great power, as they say, by how many nuclear weapons you have, right? Whether you achieve parity with the US and Russia. I think that you can look at it to some degree as like a part of China's like longer term um ambitions. You know, I think the more interesting questions with China and and nuclear weapons and and China and just sort of its international role in particular remains in the more in the Southeast, the South and East China Sea, right? And its control or, or, you know, contested control over those areas. But I mean, my top line approach to China in this moment is just like, it has repeatedly stated its willingness to participate in disarmament talks, but noting the fact that the U.S. and Russia have over 10 times its weapons, right? And so while any country developing new weapons is worrisome and should be addressed, this kind of isn't the number, I I don't see it as the number one, like priority, the number one thing to be be addressed in U.S. national security policy. I just don't think that's credible. I guess that makes sense. I mean, they've already had plenty of nuclear weapons. They've never shown any particular use for them any more than anybody else. And we consider them a somewhat responsible actor. Right. The, the, this stuff started coming up when New Start was dying because the re- Trump like dragged ass on extending it. Russia was like, we'll extend it. If you want to extend it, it'd be, you know, it'd be cool. And Trump kept dragging his feet and saying, well, we got to get like any nuclear treaty like this. We got to get China on board to which, as Claire pointed out, China would say like, y'all, we've got 300 and you want us to engage in a treaty about reducing arms. Why don't y'all come down to our level and then we can talk. And I, I, I think, I think you're right. Emma Claire. And this is something I've been, I've been thinking about in the last like 48 hours and like a line I've been seeing coming up more online is that like China's level of nuclear weapons is that is deterrence, right? If you're like a country of that size and you want to make sure that no one else nukes you, you have like, you can argue about what the specific numbers are, but like 300 
when Russia and America have thousands is, you know, like they're, they're, you're, you just have them. So nobody else hits you. Right. But when you've got as many as Russia and the U S have, like you start to, it feels less like deterrence and more like compellence. And I, I like, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about the use of that word compellence. It definitely feels like that's part of America and Russia's nuclear policies at the moment, even if they wouldn't say that out loud. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good kind of specialist term to understand what is pretty adamantly referred to, I believe, on an official level as deterrence. But and, and, you know, I'm not a person who's going to, like, argue for a narrow definition of deterrence, because I think that, you know, again, deterrence is not a workable in strategy into the indefinite future, even if it's like a real, it's a political reality of the moment. But I think that you see from the US, you see from Russia, you, you know, again, you see this like creeping norm that like deterrence means whatever we want it to mean. Right. And like even more kind of weirdo idea that if you have nuclear weapons, it's almost like your hand is, is freed. Right. And one thing that's really interesting about the Ukraine invasion and the sort of public effort to grapple with it is that it's a, it's a clear uh, example of the way in which sometimes, you know, having nuclear weapons can limits what you can do, right? There is a fairly sizable uh, contingent of supporters within the United States for some kind of more active U.S. military role in Ukraine. Even if nuclear weapons didn't exist, I am not at all sure that that would make the situation better rather than worse, but I don't think we need to go into that kind of counterfactual. But basically, like, in within that discussion, you're kind of seeing people realize that, like, oh, the existence of nuclear weapons really does limit what you can do without inviting consequences that are on a level that are like far beyond what we're seeing right now. It also allows us to not do something though, right? I mean, you have the cover where you can say, well, you know, we can't get our boots, you know, muddy because, well, they're nuclear weapons, which actually may turn out to be completely the right thing to do, actually. I, I mean, I'm making fun of not going to war, which now I feel disgusting, and <laughs> take it back. But, but you know, it's, it's interesting just how this plays any way you want it to play, right? I mean, yeah. it... That's, yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with, like, do people trust the government? I'm talking, I guess, just very colloquially about the United States. The answer is... No, I would say, although on a national security level, I think there is more trust across the board than on other issues. And there's been a great effort to maintain that trust, right? But the specific area where I think this is relevant right now is like, we're seeing more people are starting to see how you can sort of cite nuclear weapons to justify a whole range of actions or inaction. And the question then is to what extent do people trust that that is a on some level, honest, or at least like accurate assessment of the situation. Can I ask you some more big picture existential stuff kind of here as we're going out, if that's okay? Oh yeah. So there's a lot of newcomers to nuclear anxiety right now. I've had a lot of my friends asking me about it. What's your advice to someone just learning about this stuff now? Like how can they learn about it and 
keep their anxiety in check as much as possible. So not to, you know, route around the question, but, you know, I think you see the nuclear anxiety concept getting a lot of play with people whose job it is to steward nuclear weapons. Like they're very um, excited about this idea and this framing. And that's understandable because again, in the absence of any, any democratic control over nuclear weapons, which there simply isn't, there has to be trust, which can, which allows people in a nuclear armed country to believe that their leaders who are in charge of nuclear weapons, and it's very few people, you know, who, who really have a, a meaningful role in deciding if and when they're used, they have to believe that those people are making the right decisions and are making the decisions that are in their best interest, right? So I think that often you see this idea kind of deployed in a little bit of a disingenuous way. Because when you think about, think about like why people experience anxiety, you know, something that I think it's a condition that a lot of people feel they exist in these days, right? It's kind of a, it's kind of a state that you exist in, but at some point there was something that caused it, right? Maybe it was in the past, maybe it's sort of just become a part of your life, but there's a, there's a cause there, right? Somewhere deep. And, and when you're thinking about kind of that experience of that mental state, it's, it's, it's often easier to address the feeling rather than the cause. But with nuclear weapons, I think you need to make a real distinction here, which is like, there's an, like, it's a very different situation than like having some experience in the past, which then, you know, has, has created this um, kind of condition in you, right? There are actionable, if very difficult and remote, paths to getting rid of nuclear weapons and therefore removing the cause of this anxiety, right? And so all everything I'm saying probably sounds very obtuse and very just like, you know, walking around the actual question. But I think this is really the key to addressing nuclear weapons, right? I really think it's valuable if you're someone who's waking up to the moment to this moment where you're feeling a real visceral fear that nuclear weapons might be used, that you find a way to start one, start understanding the understanding how nuclear weapons work, what their actual role is, how many, we, you know, the sort of basic one-on-one stuff. And then two, like, what can you do to make sure we're moving in a direction where there is, they are less of a threat? It's a, it's a tall order, right? But it's not impossible. And I've found that when I'm facing these overwhelming, you know, existential issues, but, you know, ones that are fundamentally human created, like nuclear weapons, um, the best way to manage those feelings, which can be overwhelming, is to find some something that you personally can do to address it. You know, for me, I get that through my work, but I think increasingly there are opportunities for for mass action, for organizing, things like that, for talking to representatives where you can, you know, in some small way, have an effect on this issue and really take an action that allows you to feel less helpless and less just like at the mercy of this force that can feel so elemental, right? And so eternal, because they're really not. What do you do? When you're not talking to people like us, I mean, what is, you know, how do you actually try to move this along? Well, a lot of what I do is talk to other people like you. Um, <laughs> just doing it right now, Jason. Yeah, no, I just, you know, I just, what else? I mean, it, it, you've devoted your life to it in a way that most people haven't. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I do that, but I think increasingly I'm, 
interested in political organizing I can do through my job and externally that allows for to claw back some level of democratic control over nuclear weapons and over foreign policy writ large. That is such a tall order, right? There's so much to do to get to the point where U.S. policy meaningfully reflects like the what Americans want to see in the world. I think there's like a lot of mismatch there, but there's also a lot of opportunity to work on that. So, you know, when I'm uh, looking for opportunities to work with neighbors, work with friends, work with people in in my city, in my state to work for a better political status quo, for me, the nuclear issue is always far down on the horizon. It's far away, but it's there, right? Because Uh, If you're building up the capability to take action on on domestic political issues, political issues that affect our lives directly and in everyday way, that power will then be available to you to address these these questions that feel extremely remote, extremely abstract, but in these unpredictable moments, extremely visceral, extremely personal and extremely frightening. So that's my take. I think that's a really great message to end the show on. So that's what I'm going to do. Emma Claire Foley, thank you so much for coming on Angry Planet and walking us through this. If people are looking to get into more of the activist side of this and want to start working for change, where would you send? So one organization I work with that's doing really great work is called Beyond the Bomb. They have a presence throughout the United States working with organizers who work in their universities and their communities to ask their lawmakers to take action on nuclear weapons. You can go to beyondthebomb.org to learn more and I can also give you information about how to get plugged in. As Martin Pfeiffer would say, we built them, we can dismantle them, lick the bomb, everybody. Thank you so much. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like us, if you really like us, go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com, where for a mere $9 a month, you can get uh, commercial-free versions of the mainline episodes as well as bonus episodes every month. put out one already this month that is a... uh, a look at what it's like to use open source intelligence to cover the war in Ukraine and how someone might get into that field and what dangers there are with that. The next one, which we've already recorded, should be out maybe tomorrow or this weekend, is about uh, uh, what's going on in Ukraine on the ground. We talked to someone we've had on the show before who is there right now and got some of their thoughts and talked about some of the conversations they're having and, and what they've seen as they've been over there. So stick so stick around for that. Again, that's at angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. We will be back next week with more conversations about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.